0: When I was 22, I was on stage as a worship leader leading, you know, and I lost my faith. I was leading songs and I realized I don't think I even believe these songs. I was petrified and it kind of propelled me into a profound losing. But here's the thing, the profound losing opened up all this space for finding. (laughs) This book is about fighting for a way to stay Christian in the world when I didn't think that was going to be possible anymore.
1: This modern world is of particular interest to women. Betwixt, at the intersection of faith and culture. Hey, and I feel fine. Well, hi, friends. Welcome to the Betwixt podcast in partnership with MissUalliance.org, resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated. I'm Deb Gregory, the curator and host. The heartbeat of the podcast is to hold space for rich conversations with fascinating guests. And my favorite topic is liminality. The people, places, and practices that are in a middle space, betwixt and between one thing and another. This space, I believe, is the seedbed for growth, transformation, and flourishing. And so to help me launch Season 2 of the podcast, we have a very special and talented guest Aaron Nequist and I are about to share a really beautiful conversation about how faith-based practices draw us into spaces that are ripe for transformation. But before we hear from Aaron, I want to let you know about the Miss U Alliance Awakenings Gathering that's coming up in March. To tell us more about the Awakenings, here's Miss You Alliance Director J.R. Roscoe.
2: So Miss You Alliance convenes a national gathering every other year. And our fourth one is coming up at the end of March, 28, 29, 30 of March in Alexandria, Virginia. This year, it'll it'll revolve specifically around asking questions in, in our day and age with all of the issues that the church is facing. Let's revisit this question of what does it really mean to be the body of Christ under Jesus's lordship in and for this world that God so desperately loves?
1: Okay. Who are the speakers and and what are the topics you'll gather around?
2: Yeah, there's probably 40 or 50 different theological practitioners who will be a part of the different spaces of conversation that we're having. If I think about the plenaries in particular, you'd have folks like Charles Montgomery, who's a vineyard pastor, and Karen Swallow Pryor, who's a Baptist professor of literature, or Rich Velotis, who's the lead pastor Of a a truly multi ethnic and international church, really, in Queens, New York, or Terabeth Leach, who's the senior pastor of a Nazarene church in Southern California, or Todd Hunter, who's the bishop of an Anglican church. Uh, or Ephraim Smith, uh, who pastors Covenant Church in Northern California. So we have uh, speakers who represent a tremendous amount of geographical and ministry diversity, as well as coming from all kinds of different streams in the life of the church, the body of Christ. Men and women who we think have a unique and compelling voice to offer at this particular moment when it comes to the theme of our conference, the life of the church for the sake of the world. And so through our plenaries, we're hoping to move from these big themes of the nature of the church and the witness of the church and the character of the church and the future of the church, all the way out to the sending of the church, trying to cultivate sort of a theological imagination for the practice, the embodied life of the church. Part of what makes Missio Alliance Missio Alliance is trying to bring together uh, theology and practice in all of our resourcing and in all of our conversations.
1: That's so great. Well, thanks so much, JR. Thanks, Deb. And so now let's talk with Aaron Nequist. Hello. Hey, Aaron.
2: How's it going?
1: Hey, good. Aaron is a liturgist. Writer and pastor, after leading worship at two of America's largest megachurches, Aaron began to reimagine what a discipleship-focused, contemplative, practice-based community might look like. And so he began The Practice, an experimental gathering in the Willow Creek Chapel. Aaron is the author of the new book, The Eternal Current, How a Practice-Based Faith Saves Us from Drowning. He's also the creator of A New Liturgy, a collection of modern liturgical worship recordings, which you'll get to hear throughout this episode. I'll put a link to all these things in the show notes, but for now, let's meet Aaron. Well, Aaron, I'm just so delighted to have this conversation with you today. And you are someone who, you've got a public persona, right? So some people know of you as the guy who escaped the megachurch with your soul, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see.
1: (laughs) But I think so, yes. Yeah, and some people know of you as a guy who maybe has lost his faith to some sort of New Age Catholic mysticism.
2: (laughs) Yes. Right?
1: So what I want to know is, who do you say that you are? Who is Aaron Nyquist?
0: (laughs) Wow. What a question to begin with. I hope I am a person who's trying to consent to reality. Obviously, we all have our illusions and our broken parts and our filters. But what I desire to is get swept up in what actually is.
1: Mm.
0: And I believe to my toes that that is a loving creator who made us, who holds all of this together and is fundamentally love. Is mm. that a good place to start?
1: Oh, man. Yeah. That is so good. That word consent just yeah. really, really pops out for me. Yeah. I don't know that we spend a lot of time just consenting to the yeah. loving creator, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, we're, we tend to be more comfortable with words like control or earn or manage there's a lot of very active words that we're comfortable with. And some of them are really good and helpful. And some of them are absolutely <laughs> destructive and unhelpful. But man, that whole idea of consenting, mm-hmm. which is not passive, it yeah. is very active. Like it's not just giving up and uh, who cares? No, 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 it is. I offer my actual self to what actually is.
1: Yeah. There's this little book. It's written by a Catholic priest. Uh, It's called Interior Freedom. He uses that word consent because he sees that the way to interior freedom first begins with us consenting to God our loving sure. father, right? Yeah. So once we can consent, it begins us on the path of releasing and letting go and entering oh, into freedom. Oh, that's really
0: good. Yes. Someone who's had a huge influence on me, uh, the writer Dallas Willard, he said, famously, I have a really good one word definition of humility. He said, it's reality. ooh <laughs> And I just think that is so brilliant, especially in the context of if you look at the scriptures, God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. Like God is not neutral about whether we're humble or proud, right? And so this idea that humility is just reality consenting to what is, back to that that idea. I think it's really profound. Now, it's not easy. <laughs> we love no. to live in our illusions and, <laughs> and demand that they, you know, whatever. That is an exhausting way to live.
1: Oh, that's so good. That's a great intro. Thank you for that. Mm. Could you begin by just sharing how you think of liminality and tell us a story about a liminal experience that has in some way really shaped you? Because I think of liminal space as that kind of in between here and there, between the past and the future. And it's the place where we actually undergo shaping, forming transformation. So I just wonder what your experience has been with that. Has there been a time where you have really entered into liminality?
0: Yeah. Wow. What a great question. And I love that you're digging into this with the podcast. It's so needed in our world. Well, maybe I'd start by saying this, just anecdotally, when I look, the most interesting things tend to always happen at the intersections. Oh boy, yeah. So, I mean, even just a small example, I've been in spiritual direction with a Jesuit priest for the last five years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I grew up in like straight up evangelical world, which I still love in many ways that shaped me really deeply. Mm-hmm. So like going to a Catholic it was like, you know, am I going to lose my faith? Am I, get, you know, it was very, but it's just yeah. been utterly transformational. But Father Michael Sparrow, okay. he mentioned to me once, he said, you know, Aaron, I am a Catholic charismatic. Oh. He said, I am connected to the deep history and the roots of my tradition, but I'm always trying to stay open to the spirit. And I just remember thinking in that moment, like, that's it. That's Mm. why he's so compelling because he's not saying I am about my tribe's rules and I am fundamentally loyal and that's what I'm about.
2: Mm.
0: But he's also not saying screw anything anyone's ever learned. I'm just going to make it up every day based on my subjective experience. You know, it's both. And at that intersection of the deep history and the present spirit, Mm. Like he's just one of the most compelling Christ followers I know. Mm. So he kind of embodies some of that. But there are many. I mean, I know a lot of Pentecostal Anglicans. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't find myself in either of those streams. But, oh, my gosh, do I admire and learn from holding those things together. So Mm. at the
2: intersection.
0: Yeah. And so I would say for me, my liminal moments – maybe unfortunately, have almost always been either deep discomfort or profound pain. And I wish it were different. I wish it was just joy. And, you know, I read this great book and it was liminal space and it changed my life. Usually it pulled me into discomfort that helped pull me out of my certainty And then sometimes that leads to a new path, and that's good. But there's been a couple times where I've followed that discomfort into what felt like death. Oh, boy. But here's the thing. I mean, this is maybe the ultimate liminal invitation. It's the Paschal Mystery.
1: Okay, go there.
0: Well, new life only happens after death. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot produce A harvest so we all want resurrection in our life (laughs) we all want new life we all want what's that old gospel song everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die (laughs) and there's something about these liminal spaces invite us into the necessary letting goes and then even more than necessary deaths that then lead to new life And so maybe I'm the clearest example. And this is actually how I start uh, my book. The first line of the first chapter is when I was 22, I'd been a Christian my whole life. I was on stage as a worship leader, leading, you know, and I lost my faith. I was leading songs and I realized I don't think I even believe these songs. And it kind of propelled me into a profound losing. But here's the thing. The profound losing opened up all this space for finding. (laughs) And so, you know, I I had someone recently ask, if you could go back and tell your 22-year-old self something, what would it be? And I think I just responded something like, don't give up. Don't try to stop the dying. (laughs) Because the dying is going to lead to this entirely new thing that I think God was trying to do all along. And so a lot of times if we fight the dying, Mm. we end up sabotaging the growing, the learning, the new life. So,
1: You know, as you've been saying this, like, I hear you, but I also see the smile on your face Uh, when I'm looking at you. Yeah, sure. But surely going through that, there wasn't a smile on your face. What was it like for you going through that dying, going through that process Uh, of being like, I have a job that requires my faith. What will happen Absolutely. if I
0: lose it? Well, I'm glad you're saying that. I mean, it's 15 years later or more than that now, 17 years later, and I have never been more grateful to be a Christian.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, not always an American Christian, not always a white evangelical Christian. Like there's a lot that I'm really wrestling with. But like mm-hmm. when I read the Beatitudes... When I read the Sermon on the Mount, when I read what Jesus was actually like, I'm in. But you're right, man, when I was 23 in my first job, I was petrified. And there's a couple different layers to it. One was my Christian faith was the wallpaper on every room of every day of my life. Like it, it just was the context for everything. It was the orienting principle for everything. So you start questioning the very foundation of your entire existence and then it all crumbles. And I really felt that happening. I felt, well, if I don't know what I believe, then I don't know who I am. And I don't know, did everyone just always lie to me? Like, is this just a house of cards that it's all BS? Like, is that really the story? So it was, it was profoundly scary. my self-worth, my self-understanding, and then my vocation. Like, this is my job. Like, am I gonna be unemployed in two weeks? And then what am I gonna do? And so it's very, very complicated. And then there was also the shame part. Like, oh no, I'm a backslider. <laughs> I don't know if you grew up in a, in a tradition that talked about backsliding. Oh yeah. It started very personal. I've lost my faith. I have fallen away. Aaron, what is wrong with you? Well, I come to find out, first of all, plenty is wrong with me. <laughs> and I keep learning more and more about what's wrong with me. So there, that's absolutely true. And I came to find out nothing's wrong with me. This isn't about my failure. This is about this story was too small. No, it wasn't all false. In fact, there's a lot of truth in it. It just wasn't big enough. And so thank God it was crumbling to make space for a bigger version of that story. You know, I'm 22. I'm scared to death. Maybe one more thing about that season. It forced me to get into therapy for the first time. Okay. And I had grown up in a tradition where if you have issues, like just pray more. You know, like therapies for people who don't believe God can heal them, mm. which is funny. We didn't say that about the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> like when I had a cavity, my Christian friend said, oh, go to the dentist. He'll yeah. help you get that cleared out. No soul but decay. Yeah, no, 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 no. Therapists, they were antithetical to faith. Well, mm. I find out that therapists, especially good therapists, can be wonderful accompaniers in faith. So there was a interior thing going on in that season of my life, too. And I don't think we can separate all those things. I think we are one person. And so uh, all these parts are connected.
1: That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I was really drawn to how you talked about this process of losing your faith, just starting out the book this way. Your book, The Eternal Current, How a Practice-Based Faith Can Save Us From Drowning. The reason why I'm really drawn to your book is because I feel like the practices of faith invite us into liminality, this, this opening up, this expansive river. So what's the book about, and, and why did you write it?
0: Yeah, well, it came out of my story, and this book is not like an intellectual, here's some thoughts I have about This book is about survival. This book is about desperation. This book is about fighting for a way to stay Christian in the world when I didn't think that was going to be possible anymore. And so the primary word picture, the metaphor of the whole book is this eternal current. And basically, right in the introduction, I say there is this great river flowing throughout history toward the redemption and restoration of all things. Jesus called this the kingdom of God where the lost are found, where the broken are mended, where the oppressed are lifted up and set free. Jesus talked about this over and over and over. But here's the hinge point of the book. Jesus did not say, believe about the river. Jesus said, learn to swim in it with me. Jesus did not say, here is the truth, believe it. Jesus said, I am the truth, follow me, mm. you know, let's do this together. The invitation is participation. Mm. And that for me, who has lived most of my faith between my ears, you know, do I believe correctly about these four theological facts? That was the entirety of my faith for so many years. And beliefs are incredibly important. Of course, we're not anti-beliefs. Beliefs are so important. They're just not the end point, they're yeah. not the goal. They are propelling us into participation with Christ for the sake of the world. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the central idea of the book.
1: So with this kind of awakening for you, you had an opportunity to practice in two different ways. You... You yep. set up the practice, which is a gathering. Can you tell us about the practice?
0: Yeah. The practice is something we started about five years ago at Willow Creek on Sunday nights in the chapel. And basically we said we want to become the kind of community that doesn't just believe things about Jesus, but learns how to rearrange our lives in order to put his words into practice. mm and so we said, we're going to commit to a couple different things. And so we would always begin with a liturgy of worship based on the scriptures.
1: What does that mean, liturgy?
0: That's a great question, because liturgy is such a divisive word right now. Liturgy simply means the work of the people.
1: Hmm. It's
0: what we do when we come together. So liturgy often gets understood as old stuff or Catholic stuff, but every church has a liturgy. I mean, a church I was a part of a a number of years ago had a very clear liturgy, loud song, medium tempo song, earnest song, announcements, offering, sermon. That was our liturgy. And it's not even a bad liturgy, but we had a liturgy every week. So basically what we said at the practice is we want to set up a liturgy that is, in my wife's beautiful language, a well-balanced meal. Mm rather than just like, what is the one kind of thing we do every time? So we sing loud songs or something like that. We want to say, we absolutely want to sing loud songs and quiet. We want to celebrate and we want to learn biblical lament. We want to immerse ourselves in the scriptural text, Mm -hmm. but we also want to get out of intellectual faith into practice. And so we wanted it to be a well-balanced spiritual meal every Sunday when we came together, maybe the first 20, 25 minutes and then we would have some sort of teacher who would give a 12 to 15 minute teaching that led us to a concrete practice what we've been realizing is you know 45 minute sermon the goal is accidentally how can i get people to believe these things
1: mm.
0: and again beliefs are so important but just not enough and right. so we wanted to flip it and say our goal is always how do we invite people to practice this thing, both together here, but then all week long? And so a teaching that leads to practice, and then that would all bring us to the communion table, mm-hmm. where we'd gather around, we'd, we'd receive Eucharist together, and then have a benediction that sent us out into the world. So that was the practice gathering.
1: That's great. It sounds like there's also elements of the contemplative nature to it.
0: Absolutely. As well, right? Yep. We've just been realizing that, at least in our context, the suburbs of Chicago connected to a very type-A, hard-charging, evangelical, megachurch thing, none of us were saying, you know what? I need more stimulus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the introvert in me says hallelujah. (laughs) Is that right?
0: And we're like, man. I'm on Twitter all day when I'm not working. When I'm working, it's hard charging and then I get home and then it's kids and then it's try to watch the news for five minutes and want to jump out the window and like none of us are saying, get me more fired up. I think we were all saying, can you teach me how to slow down? Mm. Can you teach me how to find my soul in the midst of all this insanity? And obviously, action is not bad. Action is part of what we're made to do to participate, right? Mm -hmm. But man, unlimited action with no reflection is self-destruction. You can't sustain that. Mm -hmm. And so we said we wanted to be contemplative activists or Mm -hmm. action-oriented contemplatives. And so a lot of what we did on Sunday night were practices that helped us slow down get centered, notice God's fingerprints, those kinds of things.
1: I remember in your book, you talked about the layout of the space as being significant. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? How does the space offer invitation for shaping not just our liturgy, but us?
0: Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, space is not neutral. I think that is something that my evangelical tradition didn't quite take seriously enough. Mm. They tried to eliminate everything that felt holy and other. And they did. And it came at a great cost. So we were just trying to say the room preaches. What do we want the room to say? Mm. And so we had a couple of values. One, the communion table was the dead center of the room. So that's where we started. We cleared the chairs, put the table, set it dead center of the room. Well, that preaches, right? Who's the center of our faith? Christ. What is the center of our practice? Communion. So like, you cannot get away with what the room is preaching over and over and over. Secondarily, because the table's at the center, it has the bread and the juice and and then a cross on it. Because that's at the center, whoever is talking is at least partially obstructed in view by the table and by the cross, which is beautiful, (laughs) right? (laughs) You can't look at the person speaking without looking through the cross. Mm. It's so powerful. Yeah. It's not primarily about that person, right? It's oh, that man, person that so in the <laughs> of Christ, right? And so that preaches. Well, then furthermore, because the room is in the round and people are seated all around, if you look at the table or if you look at the person speaking, you see it all in the context of the community. So no matter where you're looking, you're seeing fifty percent of the faces, of the eyes, of the expressions looking back at you.
1: Hopefully not the yawns. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you
0: occasionally see the yawns and the disinterested gazes, and you know all that.
1: Yeah, but you're together, right?
0: That's you're cute. not hiding. Yeah, you're not hiding. So am I against the dark auditorium, you know, where it's just kind of me and God? Of course not. The, and mm-hmm. really powerful me and God things can happen in those spaces. But we were really interested in some other streams to mm. explore.
1: Oh, I love that. It's so challenging. But there's something that I've, I've really been drawn to in even the traditional layout of the space. And I guess what I've been thinking about over the years is how worship should invite both an invitation to the past a remembrance but also to what's ahead
2: yeah you know an good.
1: eschatology that's really good and so space really should and it does if we're aware of it or not um invites us into a worship that connects both to remembrance yeah. but also to the future hope. so good well said so as I'm, I'm hearing you talk about this space in the round. You know, I hear the remembrance of the cross, but what, what's the yeah. eschatology of the space?
0: Yeah. Oh, what a great question! I don't think I've ever heard that question. Well, I would say the language we were using for the space was we want it to feel like a holy living room.
1: Mm.
0: Talk about liminal. Or Why that? Because in our experiences, we had lost the holy. We okay. lost the feeling of transcendence. You know, we were in, mm-hmm. in an auditorium with lights and big jumbotrons. That doesn't always have that reverent, holy, transcendent feeling.
1: That's great. Yeah.
0: But we also lost the intimacy of a living room. In some ways, the holy is so important to connect us with the eternal like, God didn't just start today. <laughs> like, God has been holding the universe together for <laughs> eternity. I mean, this is, you know, and yet there is an intimacy to a living room that just reminds us we're all in this together. It's just you and me. We're just humans trying to figure this thing out together. And I think that there was a tension there that was really, really important for us. We didn't always hang in it well, but a holy living room. In terms of the future, after communion, we had a little practice called Kingdom Practices, we called it. Okay. And whoever was leading that would always start every single time for five years, would always start by saying, friends, Sunday is not the main event, but our actual lives are the main event. So this Sunday, as you go out into the world, here are concrete practices for how you can continue to align with Christ. And you know, the best Sunday night is a springboard.
1: For we are not free if our brothers and sisters are not free. And we are not free if our neighbor is not free. Help us to embody your kingdom, remembering that you have given all peoples as beings made
0: in your image, the capacity to participate in your kingdom. God created and so I think that mentality absolutely not just launches us into the world, but to your question, launches us into participating with a new future. Here are
1: we send us. Mm, yeah, I really love that. Because in some ways, we forget that worship is not something that we do and create, but it's something Mm. that's always going on, isn't it? Yeah. God is always being worshipped. And in a sense, liturgy is just an invitation for us to come together and enter into that as a community, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. To join what's already going on. Yeah. In fact, that is so much of what I believe about faith these days, spiritual practices are opening ourselves up to what God's been doing all along.
1: Yeah, and it's not just Sundays, right? So tell me about the practices. How are they shaping you?
0: Life would be unimaginable without these concrete practices. But they're simple. I had a friend, kind of a mentor, who just said, every spiritual discipline is basically the same thing. It's just another concrete way to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pure. (sighs) I think I mentioned in the book, it's kind of a mechanical analogy, but it's tuning the radio to receive the radio waves that have been here all along. <laughs> we don't turn on our radio and then the radio station sends us the waves. We're swimming in radio waves. You and me right now, we're swimming in more
1: Kind of freaks me out a little bit. I know it's <laughs> yeah, I don't want to think about what
0: that does to our bodies yeah. and souls, but it's true. And so Our job is not to convince radio waves to turn on. Our job is to tune our antenna to notice what's already happening. Uh. And that is so much what I believe about our creator and what God is doing. God is constantly working and moving and speaking. I'm not sure God sometimes speaks and sometimes doesn't. I think we sometimes listen and sometimes don't. Right. <laughs> I think God is constantly speaking and pouring out blessing and leading us and guiding us. That's grace.
1: So what kind of disciplines are you talking about? Like what, what's what been helpful for you and yeah. for your community?
0: Yeah, for us, one of the first disciplines that we chose to do communally and then encouraged us to do all week long was Lectio Divina. Oh. It's a, a Christian tradition that has been around a long time and it's a way to listen to God through the scriptures. So there are many approaches to scriptures that are analytical, that are about study, that are about learning, exegesis, really important stuff. And we need to approach the scriptures intelligently, but this is a real different way. This is more contemplative way. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's uh, just a way to listen to the same text three times, read real slowly, and to hold a couple of questions before God as we listen. And we did that the first gathering and it became a really formative practice.
1: Mm. That's when that two years ago we did during Lent at our church.
0: Yeah. Okay. And was it helpful?
1: It was. It was really beautiful and I think very transformative for yeah. those who participated throughout Lent. That's beautiful. Yeah. What are some other disciplines and practices that you do?
0: Yeah. One of the most difficult ones, we spent a whole month learning about and learning practices for Sabbath.
1: That is a hard one.
0: Oh, man. We started by saying, you know, Sabbath is the one of the Ten Commandments that Christians brag about breaking.
1: <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yeah, right. That's It is true. That is kind of tragic.
0: Yeah. Oh, and yet, as we looked around the room, there were very few, including I think most of us on the leadership team who practiced it every week and really had a deep practice. So we just said, you know what, we're all learners together. And so we did some good study on it. Mm. So yeah, the practice of Sabbath, we talked a lot about silence, You know, breath prayer. We did a whole month on centering prayer, Mm. which is very difficult and really powerful. There are unlimited number of ways that we can open ourselves to what God has been doing all along.
1: How about for you personally, what are, what are some disciplines that, you know, if we can pick up on this theme of liminality again, that really yeah. invite you into a space of letting go of something old and beginning uh, to prepare for something new? I mean, yes. what practices are very transformational for you, yeah. maybe on a daily level?
0: One is a practice of forgiveness. And I hate this practice, (laughs) it is very difficult. Back to my spiritual director, I was meeting with him and I was sharing, there was a relationship in my life where I was really struggling to forgive that person. And he taught me this practice and then he made me do it in the moment. I didn't want to. I was like, yeah, I'll do it maybe later this week. But he made me. And basically it's four prayers that he guided me through. And he even invited me to open my hands and imagine my heart was pouring into my hands and then overflowing into God's hands. Like, so you start with this just powerful image. And then he invited me to pray out loud four prayers. The first one was in God's presence. Can you articulate all the things that bother you about this person that you haven't forgiven yet? I'm like, oh man, am I allowed to do that? You know, but he just (laughs) said, you know, God's not afraid. God probably knows already what you think about this, but say it, articulate it. Okay. Prayer two was articulate in God's presence. All the things that you imagine bother that person about you. And oh, man.
1: Wow. Turn the tables. (laughs) Yep.
0: So I had to try to empathize with what is it about me that has contributed to this Mm. breakdown? And then prayer three was a prayer of blessing for that person. Not God change them. (laughs) God punish them. But God bless them. Mm. And in concrete ways. And then step four was And God, please bless me. Help me in this journey. Would you give me the grace I need? And that four-part prayer, I've returned to it many times, Mm has really been helpful. We all know we should forgive. Mm -hmm. But how? Does it just mean pretend it didn't happen? Does it mean justify what they did? Does it mean, I mean, there's all these misunderstandings about forgiveness. But this very concrete practice helped me begin to engage it a little bit. So.
1: I think that is fast becoming one of my favorite liminal practices
0: really okay
1: uh, not specifically that prayer that's the first time I've heard that one yeah. but as yeah. I as I listen to stories of liminal space and of true transformation, yeah. it again and again it comes back to this powerful concept of forgiveness yeah.
2: which is really yep.
1: the center of the gospel, isn't it?
0: It is yes. Well, I was just noticing recently, Jesus' disciples say, "Teach us to pray," and so He teaches the Lord's Prayer, which of course includes the "Forgive my enemies." Is "Forgive those who have trespassed against me," as I, you know, don't you like how I just butchered the Lord's Prayer? <laughs>
1: that was great. <laughs> I don't think I could have done our
0: any <laughs> As we forgive those who trespass against us, do you know what the next verse in the text is? The next verse after the Lord's Prayer is. For if you don't forgive those who sin against you, neither will your father in heaven forgive you.
1: Now I like to forget that part.
0: Do (laughs) it.
1: God's grace
0: is somehow directly tied to our willingness to open that door of grace to others. And so we can either say, I believe it or don't believe it. That changes nothing. Or we can say, I will learn to swim in that reality which is what the brilliance of these practices are.
1: That's wonderful. So how how does that change you when you do enter into that practice of forgiveness? Well,
0: I think there's a short-term change and a long-term change.
1: Okay.
0: The Short-term change. Honestly, just last week, I prayed this about a specific situation. And when I was done with the prayer, I did feel a little bit lighter. I felt less of that knot in my stomach you know, about how terrible that person is and why they better, do you know, that whole thing. Mm. But I think way more than short term, spiritual practices do long term change. That is so profound. Mm. I had a friend who said, I rarely notice the fruit of my contemplative practices in the moment. But you better believe later that month, when someone does something really hurtful, and I don't freak out like I usually do. I see the fruit all over my life. It's got to be something like physical practices, right? You don't work out one time and suddenly you're strong and in shape. You work out and you get a little bit stronger. And suddenly, you know, a few months down the road, you realize, oh, I'm I'm a different person than I was. And it was the sum of all these little moments, these little moments.
1: So yeah. great. I love the way a spiritual direction relationship over the years, yeah. you can look back and say, wow, all yep. those little practices, yep. all those exactly moments right. where we've held our hands open to God, yep. the long-term changes that happen. Yep. It's just so beautiful. Yep.
0: And what so a profound. gift you give to others to sit with them and listen to God with them yes. and reflect what you're hearing. Spiritual direction has been profoundly faith-altering in my life.
1: Yeah, so you are a guy who has been around the church for a long yeah. time and in many different circles and camps, you've really learned the art of holding hands huh. in a lot of ways. So as you've been doing this work, as you've been stepping out into that loving space of consent with God, yeah. how are you coming to reimagine the flourishing of the church? In your opinion, what is the future Of the church especially here in the United States what do you see
0: well start with this I am long-term really optimistic and I am short-term really pessimistic okay I think short-term we have loss crumbling disillusionment endings I think i think the next five to ten years are going to be really tumultuous
1: we are in the liminal space right
0: we are absolutely in it mm-hmm. and so that is going to be painful but what i think is going to be reborn is the way of jesus not perfectly oh man maybe this is a year year and a half ago i i was looking through the beatitudes And i was kind of doing a one-to-one the beatitudes and then the values of the american white evangelical church and you know this is a gross generalization of course but some of the core values of my tradition are not just not totally aligned they are antithetical to the way of jesus
2: are clean and our hearts are clean and will never be until we're free.
0: so blessed are the poor in spirit our churches are centered around celebrities on jumbotrons blessed are those who mourn My tradition is the most relentlessly positive, get you fired up and don't talk about the painful stuff. You just go one after another after another. We're not just misaligned. We're in opposition to the way of Jesus. How is that possible? And again, I am painting with such broad strokes. There are thankfully outliers to that in every direction. Mm -hmm. This is not everyone. But But
1: the current is strong.
0: (laughs) The current is strong. So I I think short term, it's going to be really painful. But a quote that comes to mind, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or be nothing at all.
1: Wow.
0: There's something profound in there, especially when you use mystic just to mean someone who's had a direct lived experience. Mm. So either we will have direct lived experience with God, with the Almighty, or we'll just kind of cease to exist. And I'm not sure that's even a bad thing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, Christendom in America is definitely going the way of some of the other post-Christian countries. There are some ways where this is tragic and there are other ways where I'm not sure it's entirely terrible.
1: Mm -hmm. I was recently reading something by Mircea Iliadi. He's a religious historian, and he was talking about sacred space as a place where it should be marked by signs, right? Those absolute elements that kind of reveal the transcendent things, Mm. the way he described it was that those things offer for us an orientation.
0: Yeah, that's good. Right?
1: Yep. And so we need to collectively come into spaces that are reserved to reorient us.
0: Oh, that's so good. Yes. Isn't that
1: so good? Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: And that's kind of what I hear as the pulse for you, this recognition that we're so disoriented right now, but we do need these practices, these signs to help bring us back into orientation first to the cross. And with that opens up for us the kingdom, right? Is that what you're talking about? Oh,
0: absolutely. That is so well said. Beautiful.
1: Is there anything else that you want to share, anything that you want to leave with, especially those who are in the thick of trying to lead a church?
0: (laughs) Did you say lead Lead. or leave? Oh,
1: boy. Probably (laughs) both for many people. (laughs)
0: Oh, man. Well, to pastors and priests and those who are leading, if you're struggling with this, you're not alone and you're not crazy. Something is ending right now. I think it's good that it's ending, but it's so painful and it's so disorienting, especially if your vocation is tied to it. You know, if your family's health insurance is connected to you not blowing up this church, it's very complicated. And I admire People who want to have health insurance for their kids. Like, that's not (laughs) selling out. That's wisdom. That's loving your family. And so I would say the first thing is you're not alone and you're not crazy. And there is a new way that is going to emerge. And I think the new way is going to be a really old way. So try to get started on that right now. How can you turn the page on how do we entertain people? How do we get cooler? how do we have a better website? And, you know, maybe some of that stuff is important, but people are desperate for a connection with what's most real. Maybe full circle, people long to consent to reality. We are in post truth era and people are desperate for what is actually real. If you are a spiritual leader, you have a path to offer. So I think the work of spiritual leaders has never been more important, even as the institutions are are crumbling.
1: Thank you, that's very encouraging. I'm wondering if you might just lead us in this prayer of forgiveness.
0: Ooh, yes. Would you
1: be willing to do that?
0: Love to. I would be honored to lead you, but also for any of those listening, is there someone who has become like an enemy to you? And maybe it's something that happened 20 years ago. Maybe it's something that happened yesterday afternoon. Maybe it's enormous life-shaping. Maybe it's just small at this point, just a kind of a ding that you know, though, left unattended will grow and grow. If you're driving, don't do this. But if you're sitting somewhere, if you would put both feet on the floor and just kind of sit up, but comfortable in your chair. Father Michael likes to say, when you're praying, Say to God with your body what you're saying with your heart. So if it means holding your hands open or putting both hands over your heart or whatever would help you say, God, I'm, I really want to go here with you. So would you please guide me? If you would notice that God is here, we are already fully immersed in the loving presence of God. When you open your hands out in front of you, below and in front of your heart, and just imagine That your heart is pouring out into your hands and you're cupping your hands you're trying to hold it all but it's pouring spilling all over the floor into God's hands in God's presence articulate what bothers you About this person. Name what they've done or what they didn't do. Name what has hurt you deeply, what bothers you, what makes you crazy. God's presence take a moment to name what you imagine bothers them about you if they were praying this prayer what are a couple of the things that they might say to God and you don't have to receive their condemnation you don't have to receive their shame you don't have to receive any lies But just consider what might they say and hold it in God's loving and gracious presence. Our third prayer is to put Jesus' words into practice, to pray for our enemies, to bless those who curse us. In God's presence, would you pray that God would bless this person? Not fix them, not punish them, not turn them, bless them. If they're married, pray that God would bless their marriage. If they have kids, pray that God would bless their kids. Pray for their vocation. Pray for their physical bodies, that God would bless them. And pour God's love even more deeply all over them and their lives. In God's presence, let us ask God to bless us, to help us to pour even more grace into our lives. What is the virtue that you need to continue to move forward into life with God? What is the grace? What is the strength? What is the help you need? Take a moment and and humbly but boldly In the name of Jesus, ask that God would bless you and bless your life. And so loving God, we hold these prayers in your presence and we don't presume to know how you will respond specifically, but we know you will respond in love, in grace, in blessing, in hope, in a peace that passes understanding. And so God, we hold it all before you. And we pray this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: listening to this episode of the betwixt podcast you can find more betwixt episodes and view our show notes at betwixtpodcast.com or you can visit my partners at missioalliance.org missio alliance is resourcing a church reimagined for a world recreated thank you to everyone who has subscribed and given betwixt a positive review on itunes or google play if you haven't done that yet, please consider taking a minute to help me out. This really is the fuel of podcast, and it makes a big difference. Special thanks to my friends Rivoli for sharing the music that you hear now. You can check them out at ryvoli.com dot com or Facebook slash Rivoli. Hey, it has been a real pleasure to produce this podcast for you. Thank you for holding liminal space with me today. Catch you next time.